2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, November the 6th. First, I'll be talking to Rob Wilson, CEO of Incent, a loyalty reward company using blockchain to provide a different consumer-centric reward offering. Consumers are rewarded for their entire expenditure, including bills, rent, shopping and utilities, which can be redeemed to cryptocurrency or cash. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. But now let's talk to Rob Wilson. Rob, tell us about Incent.
1: We're offering a product to consumers that will allow them to be rewarded in cryptocurrency whenever they make any expenditure to a merchant from their bank account. So Incent was minted in um, 2016 back end of and has been trading on um, one of the largest crypto exchanges since February 2017. And it's currently trading at around, uh, I think it's about 28 Uh, Australian cents for one Incent token. We've developed a technology on the back of open banking API infrastructure, which allows us to seek a user's permission to understand where they're spending and when they're spending. And that allows us to drive reward value into their Incent account every time we track a transaction. So
2: how does Incent directly advantage the consumer?
1: So we have a if, if you like, a a fire and forget sign up process, which involves a user syncing their whatever banks they want to be rewarded for transactions against, they can make that decision and decide you know what they want to sync, and it's exactly the same process as say Beemit uses or PocketPal or PocketBook uses or Raise uses. Once that is done, every time we track a transaction out of that bank account, we reward the user proportionally in inset. So it allows the, the user or the consumer to, to literally build cryptographic wealth as they, as they go about living their life. They don't need to swipe a card or uh, they're, not, you know, they, they're rewarded with something with real monetary tradable value. So, do you expect this would improve the retail experience? That's a good. question. I think that um, in the in its first iteration, our aim really is to to allow ordinary Australians to experience, you know, having their building their own sovereign wealth because they're just going about living their lives. That's our first objective. And I should be clear, it's it's a it's a genuine trade. You know, consumers are in possession of sovereign data, i.e their expenditure habits, which when aggregated and and anonymized, we believe will have a tremendous value for commerce. Now, at the moment, traditional loyalty programs harvest that data essentially for free and they remarket that data and sell that data uh, at profit. So down the road, we definitely see a commercial use for that data and what we'd like to do is encourage uh, merchant partners to drive even more cryptographic wealth back into consumers pockets for patronizing you know their business but we're not launching you know that program right now I think right now we just want to understand whether the Australian consumer has an appetite to be rewarded in this way
2: and, uh, and your, what's your take on it? Have, have they taken to it?
1: Well, <laughs> that's a great question. And one, one I ask myself daily, uh, allow me to explain, at the moment we are pre-launch. So we have um, people joining our wait list in, in numbers, right? So you know, at a, we're, we're acquiring prospective users at a rate of about, you know, between 100 and 150 a day at the moment. Which, given you know, given our our budget and our and the fact that we're pre launched and the fact that this is a very new concept, is what well, it is, what it is. But our first challenge will be to see when faced you know with the value proposition and the ability to act on it, will can will Australian consumers choose to do that? We don't. We genuinely don't know yet. Tell us about the technology behind it. Sure. Well, I mean the the blockchain cryptocurrency part of it is what it is the open bank api technology is not particularly new in itself as i said before you know rays use exactly the same um, technology to allow savers to top up so there's nothing uh, really new there bringing them together is is clearly of interest but the i guess our, our unique ip is the machine learning we put on top of open bank api technology in order that we can identify the specific merchant and reward against expenditure at that specific merchant. And the reason that's tricky is because across the banking system, there's no universal standard for identifying merchants. So we have to learn, the machine has to learn as we gather, as we gather information, who's who, in order that we can precisely reward against specific merchants, regardless of where a consumer that might be spending at them is banked so that's I guess our clever bit.
2: Great thing about the technology is it actually allows you to identify specific merchants and where the consumer is making that purchase.
1: That's right. Without the user having to you know swipe a card or or have any you know uh, affiliation with that specific merchant. So it's a really frictionless experience for the user.
2: That's quite extraordinary and uh, and this is all uh, proprietary software?
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: okay. how long did that take to develop?
1: Well, we've been at it now since um, the beginning of 2017, and, and it's a look, It's a nice little story because initially we we wanted to partner with Merchants Direct, and there was um, and so we went out to market and said, look, you know, instead of rewarding your users in sort of plastic uh, points that have no value unless they are spent back with you. And that you can adjust the value of and, you, you know, it gives you a balance sheet to manage and an accounting infrastructure to manage. We can provide you with this with this service, uh, which is more frictionless for the consumer. And actually you will put real value in their pocket. And business was very interested, but it said to us, how do we know that the the consumer is interested in this value proposition? And when we came back and asked ourselves, well, we thought that's a, that's actually a very good question. Why don't we? Stop asking for permission to build this. Go ahead and develop it, and see for ourselves whether um, you know Australian consumers are you know interested in this proposition.
2: How's the growth been for the company? Where do you see it heading?
1: Easy, if you don't mind, I'll ask. I'll answer that sort of question back to front. The motivation for incent really is born out of our you know out of our out of our background. So I have a um, a long uh, career behind me in the military. Which took me to some fairly unpleasant places.
2: You were in the navy, weren't you?
1: That's right. Yeah, and and really saw what happened when states fail. I guess that was my that was quite a formative experience for me. I saw what happened to ordinary people when states implode. So, unusually amongst the crypto currency stroke Bitcoin fraternity, I am a huge believer in the in the value to ordinary people of functioning state, but certainly the the gfc in the years beyond that have have put state in a bit of a spot and we see the we see the results of that most viscerally in in the united states and and in britain since 2016. but actually yes. there there is a there's a a general you know voting with feet happening
2: yeah
1: uh, across you know the western world and what we're seeing is the centre ground is being marginalised as people move out to the extremes.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And they're moving out to the extremes because the deal isn't working for more and more of them. And the yes. reason it's not working more and more for them is because our response to the GFC was 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 quantitative easing and that has benefited asset holders at the expense of the young. And, and people who, who who do not possess assets,
2: at the expense of ordinary people.
1: That's right. And so if you believe in state and you and you understand what has happened and you and you feel that we're on a trajectory which is heading towards increased uh, nationalism, increased international competition, stroke, agro, um, and you want to uh, try and move people back to the centre, it struck us that if you could find a way of helping ordinary people build sovereign wealth through living their life generally, that that would apply balm to this general feeling of, hang on a minute, this isn't working for me. Move people back from the fringes into the centre and rebuild uh, faith in faith in state. And so the INCENT programme, writ large, is about making it possible for those who would want to incentivize consumers to do anything whether it be spending their money or watching their content or listening to them or reading or doing something have a means of rewarding them with real value for doing so so the the program that we are that we have just spoken about is our solution for consumption we've been running pilots since the middle of last year that make, that allow third parties to reward people frictionlessly uh, with with uh, cryptocurrency for engagement and they've had uh, they've been extraordinarily successful
2: well hence the term hence the name incent
1: that's right i mean we all want to incentivize something right
2: absolutely well rob thank you very much for your time really appreciate it cheers and now let's talk to comsec chief economist craig james okay craig what's in store for the market for the coming week
3: well, I think the major focus will be on the, uh, the business survey, the National Australia Business Survey, which is coming out on Tuesday, and uh, the consumer confidence figures. Now, we have two uh, surveys of consumer confidence. We have a weekly measure from ANZ and Roy Morgan that comes out on the Tuesday. And then we have the, the Westpac Melbourne Institute monthly measure of consumer confidence coming out on Wednesday. So the big focus this week is, is confidence, consumer confidence and business confidence we know that both of those have been rising in recent times, and uh, we would expect, given the relative success that Victoria's had in, in suppressing the, the coronavirus, uh, that will continue. So uh, what we saw in terms of, if we look at the, the Westpac measure of consumer confidence, uh, it had a big rise in October, up by 11.9%, uh, the highest levels in 27 months. And, and now we've got uh, consumer confidence at a monthly level up 39%. Uh, so that's uh, a key measure of consumer confidence, that monthly uh, measure. We know that the weekly measure has been rising. So the, the two should confirm the, the trend that's been happening where consumers are m- more confident in terms of the outlook. Now, in terms of uh, business confidence, what we saw in terms of the NAB reading for, for September is the confidence you know, so improved from reading of about minus eight to minus four and um, business conditions also improved to the best levels in the order of eight months. Uh, here in Australia, the economic data has been pretty good. And of course, we we continue to focus on, on the virus, the second wave that went through in terms of Victoria. While it may not capture the full effect, uh, the, the NAB survey, I think it will show that uh, businesses are more confident about the outlook as well. So I think those are the the two things to focus on in the coming week um, on monday we 've got some data on from the Reserve Bank on credit and debit card lending ourselves at comsec we 're going to be releasing our annual results our, our annual report on home size, how big Australian home uh, houses are in Australian uh, apartments, and how they compare with the rest of the world. So that data will be coming out on Monday as well and then other things to watch out for over the remainder of the week. Um, overseas arrivals and departures, uh, the September figures coming out and then the provisional figures for October coming out on Friday. So you may not have um, uh, the tier one, the top shelf economic data coming out in the coming week, but uh, there's plenty, of, there's certainly plenty to watch out for.
2: Of course, the success with suppressing the virus is going to be driving a lot of these figures. But the question is, how much will that actually reflect, do you think, in Profits coming
3: forward? Profits is a different kettle of fish. What we will need to see first is an improvement in economic conditions, uh, people you know, so coming out of lockdown, a sense of normalcy returning to the economy, people then going out and, and spending uh, sort of money and uh, uh, investing and employing again and getting back to, to normal you know, sort of operations. We've had recently a degree of encouragement by the, uh, the Federal Health Minister. He believes that. Uh, we're gonna see a rollout of the vaccine starting from early next year. And by the end of next year, uh, 2021, uh, basically everyone who wants the the vaccine will have the vaccine. So this talk about a vaccine and rolling out the vaccine is got to be pretty positive as well. But um, for the share market, certainly it's always a case of being forward looking. Uh, I think most people would see if there's continued success in suppressing the virus, Um, and um, uh, confidence continues to improve businesses start to take on more workers then most people will see that uh, down the line we're going to see that translated in higher incomes and higher profits
2: it's interesting Uh, i mean people have been talking about a v-shaped recovery i personally think it's probably going to be more like a rocky mountain kind of recovery it's going to be up and down and um, maybe more maybe a series of W's and uh, elongated U's. And Shane Oliver actually suggested it might be in the form of a square root. Obviously, not all the industries are going to come on board. We've got issues with tourism, universities and education. Not all industries are going to come on board and that will affect the recovery.
3: We are going to see V-shaped recoveries in some sectors, some industries, some regions, and we're going to see more U-shaped recoveries or different shapes, you know, sort of the alphabet, you know, coming through in terms of others. Uh, what we know at the moment in terms of retail spending, that consumers continue to spend quite well. And You have a look at the sales updates from you know, so the likes of Coles and JB Hi-Fi and uh, Super Cheap, and they're all uh, suggesting that um, consumers are continuing to spend. And it's been super important, the support that's been provided by the, the federal government in terms of job keeper, job seeker, the, the support for, for businesses, the inducements, for um, businesses to take on employees. Uh, that's all been super important. So really, you know, sort of what shape recovery we get, UV shape, shape whatever it happens to be, provided that we continue to suppress the virus So, that the most important things because we know that um, the monetary authorities, the, the fiscal authorities uh, will continue to support, you know, so our economy and do everything in their power to make sure that we have, the best recovery that we can, and sustainable recovery. That's the most important
2: thing. How will this affect unemployment? Unemployment will hit 8% this year, and Deloitte Access Economics says it will hit 8.6% next year. What impact do you think all of this will have on unemployment? Well, we may be seen as um, uh,
3: perennial optimists, but we've looked through the data fairly carefully, and we think that the jobless rate has already peaked at 7.5%. Now, our forward-looking view is that... uh, the unemployment rate is probably going to hover between you know, six sort of and seven percent uh, for the, the next year or so. So it's going to remain relatively high, but it, it shouldn't go any higher than what we've seen it already. And that's because uh, we are seeing recovery in the economy. We are seeing jobs taking us on board. The the lead indicators, things like the wake, weekly payrolls data, does suggest that um, we're, we're getting the improvement that um, uh, the, the government wants to, to, to see. Now, Unemployment would still be too high at six percent or at seven percent, but um, certainly uh, so that will be the the key challenge over 2021 to be able to get these unemployment rates down and make sure that they don't stick at levels like six uh, to seven percent. But uh, yes, we we actually believe that the jobless rate has peaked and. Indeed, we have seen you know, sort of backtracking by some of the major authorities, such as the Reserve Bank and, and Federal Treasury. Uh, originally, they thought, you know, sort of if we go back to March of this year, a lot of the uh, key authorities thought we'd be seeing 10% unemployment rates. Well, clearly, you know, sort of that's turned out to be you know, sort of not the case.
2: One of the issues is that we're in a global economy and other economies in the world are struggling because of the coronavirus. Well, that will provide some key issues for ourselves. And one of the key uh,
3: question points, you know, sort of when we look at 2021 is the internal migration. When will that start to return? Population growth returning to Australia and driving our economy forward. And of course, connected to that is the opening of the borders. So when will the borders be open? How will they be opened? Um, Will we be giving preference to to, to migrants, um, providing key jobs and skills that we need you know, sort of here in Australia and how will that process you know, sort of be handled. But um, certainly we are in the best position probably of any major industrial country yes, in the world to be able to open up our borders. And um, probably, yes, we will see uh, sort of bubble arrangements uh, starting with New Zealand, perhaps Singapore and some of the Pacific Island uh, nations. But we've had remarkable success in terms of uh, controlling the virus and, and the hope is that it will continue.
2: So when do you see migration coming back?
3: I think what we'll see, see in um, uh, a partial form, we'll start to see that coming back by mid-next year. Certainly, uh, sort of if the anecdotes that we have so far from, you know, as I said, from the Federal Health Minister, that um, we would start to see the rolling out of the vaccine for major health workers early uh, sort of in 2021, uh, and then, yes, yeah, sort of rolling out to to the rest of the economy, yes yeah, so that if we do get that vaccine and the vaccine is relatively successful, that will enable a partial opening up the economy. but uh, as we 've seen in um, across australia, those governments have taken a very cautious approach to opening up the, their borders has been very, very successful in political terms as well as economic terms, and um, that caution is, is something which I think um, we will have to continue to persist with. We've seen what's happened when um, borders have been opened too quickly, and um, uh, normalcy has been you know, sort of tried to be achieved too quickly in places like Europe and the United States.
2: Indeed, indeed. And Craig uh, James, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you, Leon. So, what's happening in the news? Well, the world's demand for oil may now peak in 2028, two years earlier than previously thought and at a much lower level, according to consultancy Rystat Energy, which has dramatically shifted its long-term forecast because of a COVID-19 crisis and the acceleration of a transition to clean energy. The firm expects the pandemic to significantly alter the peak oil demand reckoning moment, both in terms of timing and volume, helped along by more forceful moves by government to target lower emissions. Global consumption of crude oil is now seen reaching its peak of 102 million barrels per day in 2028, instead of more than 106 million barrels per day in 2030, according to RISTAT's latest forecast. In 2020, the persistence of the pandemic is seen driving oil demand down to 89.3 million barrels a day, from 99.6 million barrels per day last year. While demand picks up next year, it is still hampered by regional lockdowns and a slow recovery in international aviation, and only returns to pre-COVID-19 levels in 2023, when it is expected to reach 100.1 million barrels per day. And Australia's second most populous state, Victoria, is only just emerging from a 112-day lockdown, but central bankers reckon the national economy beat it out of a COVID-induced slumber, eking out some growth in the third quarter. That does not mean that Australia's travails are over. Unemployment is rising and inflation is well below the Reserve Bank's target of 2-3%. to 3%. So the Reserve Bank of Australia has cut the official cash rate to a new historic low of 0.1%. The bank also cut its yield target on the Australian three-year bond to 0.1% and announced a slew of other measures to help Australia recover from the coronavirus-driven recession. In a major new policy initiative, RBA Governor Philip Lowe also announced the start of a $100 billion bond-buying program aimed at lowering longer-term rates. Known as quantitative easing, or QE, the commitment to buy over the next six months is aimed at weakening the Australian dollar, which would boost exporters and further assist the economy rebound from the COVID-19 downturn. Ten years ago was the last time the RBA increased the cash rate. It shows how far Australia has deteriorated. The RBA's announcement is actually an indictment of the government's weak fiscal policy, much of a government's announced stimulus has not been spent, so the RBA has been forced to do what it didn't want to do. It now has to do the heavy lifting. And it's quite clear from the RBA's statement that it's not expecting an economic recovery for a few years. That's why it's focusing whatever artillery it has on the economy. The RBA says, for its part, the board will not increase a cash rate until actual inflation is sustainably within the 2-3% target range. For that to happen, we need wages growth, and for that to happen, we need an unemployment rate of 4%. The RBA acknowledges that's not going to happen for at least three years. We're in for a very rocky road, so much for a V-shaped recovery. And the ANZ job ads recovery maintained a steady pace into October, rising 9.4% for the month. Job ads have now regained more than three-quarters of the plunge they took in March and April. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, building approval soared during the month following relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions, with Western Australia and South Australia leading the way. The data shows that building approvals rose 15.4%, significantly beating expectations of a 1.5% rise. In August, that number had declined 1.6%. And house prices across Australia have risen overall for the first time since the start of COVID-19. House prices were up nationally in October. It follows five months of national declines during the coronavirus pandemic. Melbourne is the only capital city market that did not record a rise in values in October. Monthly data from CoreLogic shows that as a collected average, the housing market experienced a 0.4% rise in October. It follows month-on-month average decline since the pandemic started shaking the nation's economy. And new research has found that if climate change goes unchecked, it would cost Australia 3.4 trillion and almost 900,000 jobs by 2070, dwarfing the impact of the coronavirus recession and devastating key industries such as tourism and mining. The research by Deloitte Access Economics suggests a country could adopt a net zero emissions policy at a fraction of the cost of dealing with a pandemic that would help grow the economy over the next half century and add a quarter of a million jobs. The report, based on the assumption of a three degree increase in global average temperatures by 2070, examines the economic fallout if nothing is done to address climate change. It differs from most other economic models because it takes into account the impact of higher global temperatures, whereas almost all others assume there's no cost from a hotter, drier and more variable climate. According to Deloitte Access, unchecked climate change would reduce Australian economic growth by 3.6% a year and cost 310,000 jobs annually by 2050. By 2070, the economic costs will have almost doubled to 6% or 3.4 trillion in present value terms and 880,000 jobs. The impact is around the same as the economic costs of the coronavirus pandemic until 2055, and then grows. The report's principal author, Dr Pardeep Philip, said the cost to Australia of climate change would continue rising every year, with farmers, builders, manufacturers, miners and tourism-related businesses at the economic front line. And big United States retailers have been stocking up again on consumer staples in anticipation of a renewed bout of pantry hoarding by shoppers as COVID-19 cases soar, which has in turn flowed through to robust demand for pallets at logistics giant Brambles. Brambles' chief executive, Graham Chipchase, tweaked the group's full-year sales and profit guidance towards the upper end of a previous ban given in mid-August because of the solid trading in the September quarter. Mr Chipchase said conditions were volatile and it was hard to predict where the economy was headed, but the group's US operations had experienced a strong three months to the end of September. And Australia's fuel sector has been dealt a further blow with more than a 100 jobs cut due to the slump in demand for jet fuel amid analyst predictions. Ampol may shut its Leighton refinery after BP's decision to close Quinana. The reductions across jet fuel operations at some of Australia's biggest airports have exceeded 100 workers after steep falls in demand given the shutdown of air travel. Several of Australia's biggest jet fuel suppliers, including Ampol and Viva Energy, are among companies that have permanently shed roles given the rapid reduction in aviation demand. Ampol said in October jet fuel volumes declined 64% due to international and domestic fuel travel restrictions, while Viva said volumes fell by three quarters compared to the same period a year earlier. The job losses add to 600 manufacturing workers out of a job within six months, following BP's decision on Friday to close the nation's largest refinery, Western Australia's Quinana facility. BP will also slash 20% of Australian staff in a further blow to the nation's energy sector, with the British oil and gas giant starting the process of cutting about 200 office roles. Energy Minister Angus Taylor held crunch talks this week with Ampol, which runs Lighten in Brisbane. Viva Energy, operator of Geelong in Victoria, and ExxonMobil, owner of Victoria's Altona plant, as fears mount the entire oil refining industry could be gone within a year. An online book retailer, Booktopia, is taking advantage of a COVID-inspired boom in book sales to list on the Australian Stock Exchange, four years after pulling the plug on a previous run of the board's. Booktopia is raising forty three point one million dollars from investors twenty five point one million dollars of which will be used to expand its range and distribution capacity and reduce debt and eighteen point one million of which will be paid to existing shareholders however co-founder and chief executive tony nash who owns twenty point two per cent of the company and is credited with building the business over the last sixteen years amidst the rival of online juggernauts amazon and the book depository does not plan to sell any of his shares into the ipo Releasing Booktopia's prospectus on Monday, Mr Nash said online book sales had boomed in the second half of financial year 2020, fueled by demand during the pandemic. And a $41 billion pension fund being sued in Australia for failing to properly account for climate change in its investments has settled the lawsuit ahead of a three-day hearing. The federal court in Sydney was adjourned after Retail Employees Superannuation Trust and Mark McVeigh, a 25-year-old fund member who brought the action, reached its settlement. Details of the agreement were not revealed in court. McVeigh bought the case in 2018 claiming REST wasn't doing enough to protect his retirement savings against the impact of rising world temperatures. The case was seen as a test of whether money managers have a fiduciary duty to help combat the ravages of a warmer planet. The settlement, while not binding on other investment funds, suggested investors who lag their peers in testing their portfolios against climate change risk being vulnerable to lawsuits seeking to compel them to do so. REST will now conduct scenario analysis to inform its investment strategy and strategic asset allocations. It will disclose its entire portfolio holdings and will advocate in companies to comply with the goals of the Paris Agreement, which seek to limit global warming by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And the battered 171-year-old wealth management icon AMP faces a potential sale. Australian wealth manager AMP said a preliminary takeover approach from U.S. private equity firm Ares Management Corp. values the company at $6.4 billion Aussie, that's U.S. $4.5 billion. It is the first serious bid for the company since new AMP chairman Deborah Hazelton put it on the sale block with a portfolio review in early September. In a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, Aries Management said due diligence and discussions with AMP were very preliminary and there's no certainty that any transaction will occur on the proposed terms within any particular time frame or at all. And Westpac has revealed a 62% plummet in full-year cash profit to $2.608 billion as the bank looks to draw a line under its Ostrak saga and battles with the fallout from the coronavirus. The hits saw cash profit for the full-year fall a whopping 4.247 billion dollars lower, and was well under analysts' expectations for 2.65 billion dollars, according to consensus forecasts from Bloomberg. Among the key issues weighing on the result were the impact of COVID-19, lower income, and higher costs. Impairments for bad and doubtful debts have been raised by 2.2 billion to 6.2 billion. The bank reported a steep fall in the number of loans that had frozen at the request of companies, with 41,000 home loans in deferral worth $16.6 billion, down from 146,000 home loans worth $54.7 billion at the peak. And Woolworth's September quarter sales rose at almost double the rate in the year-ago period, soaring 12.3% to $17.9 billion, buoyed by demand in stores and online for food, liquor and homeware from consumers spending more time at home. Same-store sales in Woolworths Earnings Engine Room, Australian supermarkets, rose 11.5% in the three months ending September, with online food sales doubling, surging 100% to reach 8% of sales. Food sales growth accelerated despite the boost from pantry stuffing in the June quarter. The 11.5% September quarter gain followed 8.9% same-store sales growth in the June quarter and 6.6% in the September quarter a year ago. And China is threatening to impose bans on up to $6 billion of key Australian exports from Friday under a widely distributed notice sent to the country's food and wine distributors, which has raised fears of a second wave of economic coercion as diplomatic relations hit a new low. The addition of copper, ore and sugar to a growing list of Australian commodities being targeted by Chinese authorities has alarmed the agricultural and mining sectors, which were on Tuesday scrambling to verify the authenticity of the notice. The move came as China banned timber from Queensland and blocked trade from an Australian barley exporter after customs claimed pests found in the imports threatened the country's ecological security. China's Commerce Ministry had verbally told food and wine importers at meetings in three cities on Friday not to initiate further orders for the six Australian commodities ahead of a possible ban. But traders and distributors interviewed on Tuesday questioned the authenticity of the directive. And lobsters are the latest casualty of trade tensions – Commercial fishers across the country have been told to stop catching lobster amid fears tons of live product could sit stranded at Chinese airports as a seafood delicacy becomes the latest export caught up in trade tensions between Australia and China. It is understood that Chinese customs officials changed inspection procedures late on Friday, throwing the trade into chaos. Australia's biggest lobster exporter, the Geraldton Fishermen's Cooperative, or GFC, has told fishermen to stop catching the seafood delicacy until at least... Friday, West Australian-based GFC has about 300 members who sell almost all their catch to China. Trade Minister Simon Birmingham said the Morrison government was aware of reports of customs clearance issues related to premium shellfish imports into China and was working closely with the industry to shed light on the situation. And female workers bore the brunt of the economic shutdown caused by the coronavirus pandemic. But men will be the bigger losers over the longer term as male-dominated industries atrophy according to analysis released by Labour front-bencher Claire O'Neill. In a speech delivered to the McKell Institute think tank, Ms O'Neill, the Shadow Minister for the Future of Work, says there's no doubt women were hurt terribly by what she calls the artificial phase when large sections of the economy were forcibly closed by governments. But citing research by McKinsey, Ms O'Neill says some of the hardest-hit industries running into March next year will be construction, 88% male, manufacturing, 73% male, and professional services, like lawyers and consultants, of which 57% are male. She said that McKinsey estimates when JobKeeper and job seeker are withdrawn up to March next year, just under half a million jobs will be lost, and that her analysis suggests more than 60% of those jobs will be lost by men. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to entrepreneur Ringo Chan, who is on his way to revolutionising the bedding industry with his eco-friendly, ergonomic and philanthropic company, Ecosa. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the RBA's decision to cut interest rates to drag Australia out of the coronavirus recession. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.